Hi, Drew Zagorski here, and I got two words for you, direct mail. To a business owner, those are two of the scariest words in the universe because they only bring to mind big dollar signs and little return on investment. Well, there's a better way to reach and stay in front of engage your customers, prospects, and cohorts. Now, here's two more words, constant contact. Yep, I've used them for years for my businesses, and the bottom line is this. It works. In fact, if you go to you don't say.net, you can sign up for my email and you'll never miss another episode of You Don't Say. For pennies per contact as compared to direct mail, I can reach and connect with up to 500 contacts. Yep, 500 contacts for as little as 20 bucks a month. Constant Contact provides powerful email tools that include a library of awesome design templates, list management and reporting, event management, polls, and more, as well as a website builder with e-commerce capabilities. So, if you're looking for a way to stay in front of your audience, Constant Contact is everything you need. And here, I'll make it easy for you to find them. Simply go to bit.ly forward slash YDS stories. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash YDS stories to start your free trial account today. Is your business suffering from so what syndrome? When you look at your branding and be honest with yourself, does it fall flat? What you really want is for people who encounter your business to say, aha, you don't say, and be compelled to click that button or pick up the phone. If you're ready to become an aha brand, give Left Brain Right Brain Marketing a call at 503 503- 961-3647 or check us out online at lbrbm.com This is Drew Zagorski. You're listening to You Don't Say. Thanks for that. And don't forget to follow and review us wherever you listen to podcasts or at youdontsay.net and share with your family, friends, and everyone else you know. So, here's the story. True Crime Unfortunately, it's an industry. Millions of people devour true crime content, books, movies, TV, and I got to admit, I'm one of them. I'm a reader, so that's what I consume most, that and documentaries. My wife's a fangirl when it comes to crime shows like Bones, NCIS, and others on TV. And here's the TV formula. There's a murder. The team gets called to the scene. Our super sleuths walk the scene of the crime for four minutes, usually spotting subtle evidence and clues that are outside the crime scene tape that nobody else as skilled as them has spotted. They leave behind a few people in Tyvek bunny suits who are scraping surfaces and collecting other evidence. But for the most part, the sleuths have gotten about 90% of the way to solving the crime. They go back to the headquarters and almost always go to a room in the basement where a nerdy, quirky, lovable person works. Now, this person has a setup that includes a really large interactive screen where they can do just about anything in terms of crime solving. They take a few pieces of info from our sleuths and they generate a CGI animation of exactly how the crime went down, the instrument of death, and often info that paints the bad guy into a corner. Then it's only left for our sleuths to chase the bad guy or gal down. Easy peasy. We all know this is a fantasy. It's escapism. True crime is far messier and often can take years to solve, if at all. Lives are destroyed by the crimes, not just the person or people who are murdered, but those of their surviving family, friends, and co-workers, and those of the perpetrator as well. There's real blood, ugliness, and memories of it that can never be erased. There's also real police officers and investigators who have to respond to crime scenes. 
they come onto a crime scene and have to take it in with a calm approach, no matter how disturbing. They have the challenge of keeping their cool as they sort through the details of the scene. Their investigations aren't easy, neither technically nor psychologically. On TV, the sleuths are able in most cases to get clean DNA samples that lead directly to the perp, and at the end, they live happily ever after with no psychic issues at all, either short or long term. In true crime, bodily fluids get commingled. Scenes can be compromised before the first responders arrive. And if there aren't any easy answers, the investigation can stretch out. They'll go cold. It's a nightmare for everyone involved. The crime scene investigators who process the scene have a tremendous burden to carry, and not simply in terms of just solving the crimes. Imagine, just for a second, if you went to work this morning, you get a call to come to a certain address. When you arrive, what greets you is a living room spattered with blood, an elderly woman who's been bludgeoned beyond recognition and possibly raped, either while she was alive or maybe post-mortem. You have to be in this scene for hours as you work through the evidence gathering. And there's a constant stress to ensure that you're preserving evidence and even more pressure because you want nothing more than to be able to provide answers to the family and to bring the perpetrator to justice. Then your day ends, but you know you need to get back into the case the next day and tomorrow may bring yet another crime scene. You get into your car for the 20-minute ride home to your family. Think about that for a second. How the hell do you walk through that door and not carry the horror that you witnessed earlier in the day with you? Today I'm talking with retired veteran forensic technician and crime scene investigator Frank Giandola. Frank will be sharing the realities of what a day in the life of a crime scene investigator looks like and the impact it has on the people doing that work. Frank served in law enforcement for 24 years as a patrol officer, youth officer, training officer, and evidence technician. During that time, he served as a forensic technician team leader on the NORTAF Multi-Jurisdiction Homicide Task Force and also taught classes in police photography, fingerprint processing, and impression evidence collection. He retired in 2002 and went to the Schaumburg, Illinois Police Department as one of their full-time civilian crime scene investigators. He was in that role for 15 years until 2017. While he was there, Frank worked many different crime scenes from property crimes to homicides and oversaw the transition from film to digital photography and the transition from paper to computerized evidence reports. So I'll be talking with Frank about all that and more. So joining me today again is Frankie Andela. Frank, thank you for your time and willingness to uh, talk with me today. So let's go begin at the beginning. You began your career in law enforcement in 1979 as a patrol officer. So what led you to choose law enforcement as a career? Truthfully, I was working as a facilities manager. There were a lot of part-time Chicago coppers that that I worked with, and they kind of threw it out at me, said, hey, why don't you try this? Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of things that I didn't um, really think about, good pension, good pay, interesting work, you know, that kind of thing. One of the guys actually was the patrol officer or the liaison with the governor's office. So I got to talk with him a little bit about it. He loved what he did. And um, I, I went off in that direction, tried it, see if, you know, if I could pass the test, even I scored number one on the, on the list that I, uh, 
at the, the department that I started at and um, stayed there pretty much my whole career, except okay. after retirement, I, I went elsewhere. So, yeah, you you served as a, a patrol officer, youth officer, training officer. Right. And then you moved into being an evidence technician. At what point in your career did that happen? And was that something that was your choice or was it something that uh, your supervisors or superiors were saying, you know what, Frank, I think you might have uh, a yen for this kind of work? You know what? It was thrown at me. It was not something that I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And um, there really wasn't much saying no back then. This is the 80s. Right. Um, so um, I went to the schools. There were a couple of guys uh, that I went with. It was looking back now, it was very basic. And um, it hadn't changed up until the 90s. It really hadn't changed from the way they were doing things in the 60s and the 50s, Mm. probably. Um, If you look into the history of printing and um, evidence work, we were doing the same stuff in the 70s and 80s. So um, nothing really changed drastically. Some of the technology changed, um, but nothing really blew up until DNA came on the scene and then everything kind of went in a different direction. Okay. I, I I hated the job at first. I'll tell you, um, it was a dirty job. It was not very rewarding to me just because of the way that it was administrated. Um, You really didn't get much follow through on a lot of the cases you did. So it was at times very frustrating. Right. So So, to, um, to clarify now the, role of an evidence technician differs from crime scene investigator how or well, does you're, uh, most police departments still have um, what they call evidence technicians and what the technician does is he responds to a crime scene and usually a minor property crime or minor um, crimes against person and they collect take photographs collect any kind of evidence that they're trained to do it. And back mm-hmm. in the day, it was pretty much fingerprint. So right. if you wanted to get any kind of evidence at the scene, you looked for fingerprints. That was it. Much different now. Um, the training for even those basic evidence techs in police departments is, is um, much more advanced. They, if nothing else, know what they have to, or what they can have the potential to uh, to find at a scene, which is uh, something we really didn't even think about back then. It was like, go find some fingerprints, mm-hmm. and how long is it going to be before you can be- get back in your beat? Okay, okay, get back on the road. Okay, so that was the that was the priority. You were filling uh, two roles. You were a patrol officer, and you were also an evidence technician. Um, there were times when I was a training officer, evidence technician, and had to work a beat all in the same day. You know, mm-hmm. with a new police officer. So um, it was a very, very busy day. So anyway, it was, uh, it was something that I really didn't, didn't care for uh, at the beginning. And then later I kind of found it that it was, I I discovered all of the technology that, that the fact that there was not just fingerprint powder that you could use, that there was chemicals and there were all kinds of other things like cyanoacrylate was coming on the scene, super glue fuming, Um, I threw a lot of that at the department and said, hey, why don't we do a lot more of this stuff? It's not that hard to do. 
we need to spend some money, you know, to get a few pieces of equipment, but we took baby steps and in, in getting yeah. a lot of the things. Yeah. Okay. So, so now you're doing this work as an evidence technician for a while, then, then you become a part of something called, and this is a mouthful, so bear with me. You become part of something called NORTAF Multi-Jurisdictional Homicide Task Force. What was that and what was your role? That was a, um, back in the 80s, the, the idea of a task force was something that was thrown together when a department had a big case. And um, many times the guys, they were thrown together um, and they had never worked together. They did not know how to work as a team. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're de- even within a department, you, you have a. Right. Cause across different departments, you have different protocols, right? Exactly. Everybody has different rules and regulations, you yeah. have different protocols. Some have forms that you, others don't, you know, for certain types of things. Um, it would be a, it, a real nightmare if it was involving two counties, two different state's attorneys. And then you would have um, all kinds of different uh, problems. But okay. um, what happened in nineteen in the um, in the eighties? I'm going to say it was the Brown's Chicken case uh, over in Palatine, Illinois. Uh, you familiar with that one, Drew? Um, uh, I, a, I I am vaguely, but fill us real in. quick, it was a it was a murder in a Brown's Chicken fast food restaurant that uh, went unsolved for decades. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, it was the task force that was thrown together for that that led someone to say, hey, wait a minute, this is this is not working, okay? People are going there with agendas. People are going there, I want to lead this. I want to do this. Nobody's in charge of anything. The, the departments for the objectives for the home agency were the ones that were ultimately in charge, and they were off doing their own thing. What are these guys in the task force supposed to do? So, um, they threw together an idea, somebody did, and I, I, I can't tell you who, but of a, of a task force that always trains together. They, they mm-hmm. are always, you put, you put two guys or one or two, depending on the size of the agency, in the task force. Uh, the idea of, of having a task force where everyone trains together all the time. Right. And the... They, you get to know each other. You have certain tasks. The task force itself actually has its own rules and regulations. So um, most of, the, I mean, when they're put together, of course, they're within. They, they take into consideration the, the procedures of the agencies that are involved. But the fact that you're you're always there and you're together and you're on call and uh, you know who you're going to be working with and what their roles are mm-hmm. made a huge impact um, in these task force investigations. So the first task forces that were put together, they mostly deal with homicides, major crimes, um, parental, non-parental kidnappings because of the, um, the complexity involved with a lot of those sometimes. Mm-hmm. And you have representatives, not only from the agencies, um, the NORTAF task force that I was involved with had 19 different agencies. And you had one or two um, representatives from each of those in the task force. So you have a huge amount of resources available to you if something like that comes up, because that that could drain um, all of the resources from an agency with only, you know, 50 people, 50 officers. Right. Um, and the task force can move in and they can take over and they can do 
they can go out of town. They can send four people, you know, to different cities. And uh, so anyway, that that caught on um, and it really was a, a big success. So later what happened was, um, and I can't tell you who was the first. I know Nortef was one of the first. Um, they actually put together a forensics team and they said, hey, if that works for investigators, well, let me back up and say, once this task force of investigators was put together, then limited to whatever resources the agency had for evidence. So your evidence technicians, the guy that, you know, maybe doesn't want to be there and mm-hmm. he is only uh, knows how to do fingerprints. He was your guy that you had to work with in this uh, situation with the homicide. So they threw together a, um, a forensic branch of the task force and, uh, Again, one or two guys from each agency, we, they split it up into teams, mm-hmm. eventually garnered their own, got all their own equipment, got our own equipment, and um, it worked really well. We did the same thing. We, we trained every month together, same people. Uh, we were on call together. You were working with a team, and then you had a, a, a supervisor and a team leader. And it was a, it was a formula that really worked well. Okay, uh, We were able to if we didn't have a homicide that month, we would still get together, train, uh, work on different type evidence collection, processing, different, different types things. of evidence collection. Right. Yeah. And, and you always worked with the same people. And I knew what Jim was going to do and Rick right. was um, going to do this and he liked fingerprinting. So he was, you know, going to be sent to do all the fingerprinting. Right. Another person uh, is going to be sent to do all of the uh, footwear impressions or mm-hmm. all of whatever. So you had all these different tasks, people to do it within you know the time allotted. Okay. So now you're doing that for a while. You know, you kind of go through your career with that. After 23 years, you retire from law enforcement. And just when you thought you were out, they pulled you back in about a year later, right? You became a full-time civilian crime scene investigator. Yeah, actually, it was um, that was one of the reasons I retired because um, this job came up. I was always said that after 20 years, I'm going to make myself available if a job comes up. At 25 years, I was going to start looking actively for some other job, you know, after yeah. I retired. So this came up at 24. And um, I went and had and retired and, and took the job over at Schomburg PD. Okay. And that was a full-time crime scene investigator job. So, so how did that compare to what you were doing previously? And who did you answer to in that role? It was very comparable, except the fact for the fact that I had a lot more time. Um, remember previously I mentioned that everybody was on your back. When are you going to get done? Right. What, um, hand in your fingerprint cards, do a short report, and you're done. Yeah. You don't know what happens with the case a lot of times. In this situation, what I was uh, tasked for would be assigned a, um, a job to work with a detective, and I would take that case, and I would follow it through all the way, for bringing, bringing the evidence in, lining up any kind of um, exemplar fingerprints or shoe impressions or any so, kind of so what, something what is it, I needed what, to collect from the victim. Okay. So yeah. um, just to clarify, what is an exemplar fingerprint? When, um, if I were to go to your house and someone broke into your house, uh, just as an example, uh, and I collect fingerprints, uh, those could be your fingerprints. Right. I don't know. Um, so I would, um, I would schedule the homeowner, the person that lived there, anybody who had access to that, 
to come in and give us a set of fingerprints. And uh, those are exemplar or example fingerprints. So we would then first compare anything that we collected to those. If they belong to the homeowner, we would get rid of them. We know that they wouldn't be of any evidentiary value. Right. Okay. Because they're supposed to be there. So as a matter of form for crime scenes, it, is is it just a, a policy at this point that they all have a civilian investigator or what criteria call for that role to be assigned to a crime scene? The, the policy of the department would dictate what type of um, what type of incident would have a crime scene investigator respond. In the case of where I work, they any death investigation, whether it was reported as natural, um, you know, a relative comes in and finds their dead in bed. Maybe they have been trying to get a hold of them for a few days. Mm-hmm. And det- they, a res- initial responding officer, your police officer would respond. A detective would respond and a crime scene investigator would respond. And those were, um, if it was, in fact, looks like it was a natural death or there were medical medical conditions that were present to you know, that what maybe the person was a, had cancer or the person had severe liver disease or something mm-hmm. like that. We wouldn't do much. You know, we would probably maybe take photos and um, then just file those away and go on to the next call. Um, but yeah. if it was something there that would, didn't look right, um, you know, when, um, this is at the bottom of the basement stairs and uh, she doesn't have any kind of problems with balance. You know, the neighbors say, no, she rocks just fine. Everybody gets, she gets around. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look for just suspicious things like that. And you dig a little deeper, you know, to see if there's anything else that might be there. Got it. So, so you know, I can't imagine there's anything such as a typical day for a crime scene investigator, but as close as you can, Tell us what a a day looks like. Um, well, I, I guess a typical day would be uh, when you come in and um, see what else is on your on your plate that you need to finish that day. Because mm-hmm. uh, there's always, I mean, there were times when I would have uh, up to seven incidents stacked up mm-hmm. where I had to write reports. And that's one of the things that takes the longest sometimes is writing reports. First thing I would hit is... Um, finishing up any kind of reports that I had and then continue working on that until we see what comes in, um, something comes in that day. Or if I brought something in um, maybe yesterday or two days ago and I needed to work on the evidence that I brought in for that case, Mm -hmm. I had the time to do that. I could go and take all that stuff that I brought in to the lab, to our in-house laboratory and do whatever kind of processing and stuff that I couldn't do at the person's house, maybe with chemicals or uh, super glue fuming or mm-hmm. something like that, alternate light sources that we had. Uh, we could do all that in-house and then we could take the results from that, put it in a report, compile all that stuff, and then send it off if we had anything to send to the crime lab, to send it to the crime lab for comparison. Got it. Okay. Now, when- else, it seems like you never get ahead sometimes, right? You know, when when we watch these TV shows, the CSI people always solve the crime. Do you and your well, they call it we solve the crime. Do you and your your colleagues look at it that way? There's I mean, there's a whole team of people working on things. 
So what's what's your uh, nomenclature for that sort of thing? Do you look at crimes as solved or cases closed or, you know, what I'm getting at is there's a lot of people who work on this, not just a crime scene investigator. Um, There's officers in the field who are, you know, using old fashioned methods like shoe leather to go chase down information. Um, So what's what's the mentality of a team of responders? The mentality should be that it doesn't matter who solves the, the, the case uh, mm-hmm. as long as it gets solved. I work very closely with detectives. Um, they are very good. They were very good about putting out information to patrol officers when they go out on the street, look for this, look for that. We're looking for this guy if you see him. And if that patrol officer sees that person, brings him in, and then calls that detective, that was a very good lead. I mean, that person should get credit for that, but it doesn't, uh, but it, that doesn't end right there. Okay. If they bring right. someone in and we've got shoe, shoe impression evidence, for example, or fingerprints, then we need to be called in and uh, the crime scene investigator will go in and take that person's fingerprints. And like we did with the exemplar prints, now we have the prints from a suspect uh, or the shoe impressions from a suspect or DNA from that suspect. Okay. Um, if we have DNA evidence, but even if we don't have DNA evidence, we would probably collect it anyway. Right. Um, then you've got to deal with, or actually the detectives would usually deal with um, the attorneys. Okay. Cause maybe that person would lawyer up and now they say, I'm not going to give you anything. So now that you need to say, that kind of stuff. And you've got a certain amount of time to get that 72 hours. Um, if you can't get a subpoena within 72 hours to collect it, or if the subpoena is not approved, um, then you have to release that person unless you have enough evidence to charge them. Okay. Well, that's the, that's the reality, you know, of that kind of thing. Um, we don't solve the crimes ourselves. Now I may bring something back and I do all the preparation. Um, let's say I collected DNA at a scene. Okay. Um, okay. I have to collect uh, exemplar DNA from that suspect and also would have elimination DNA from the, um, from the homeowner. Okay. Because that could be blood maybe at the scene, they break a window, they cut themselves, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So we would have to call in, uh, we'd be called in and then we would use the proper procedures to get that, get that sample from the victim or from the uh, homeowner or from whatever witness there might be. And then we send that to the lab. We wait, it seems like forever to get the results back because they're underfunded. And uh, within a year or so, maybe in, in Illinois, we might get the result back. So that's um, the reality. there is no going into the basement with the cute, you know, right. Right. Yeah. With the little nerd and the supercomputer, the supercomputer. Right. Yeah. Frank, let's talk about DNA because you kind of were on that dividing point pre-DNA and then DNA, right? Right. So at the beginning, when you started, DNA really wasn't a a thing or it wasn't perfected enough to become usable. What impact did that have in terms of solving crimes and how common is it to be able to catch a perpetrator with it? I mean, I, I see documentaries and read books and things like that where DNA samples sometimes fall short or they aren't complete or there's multiple samples. So you can't really pin it to one person. Talk to me about that. Um, DNA technology has advanced 
quite a bit from from its beginnings back in the late seventies, early eighties. Mm-hmm. And um, whereas in the past you really needed a, a big sample, you needed almost, well, I'd say a, a small vial full of blood if you wanted to mm-hmm. do get DNA from blood. And now um, they have what they call micro DNA, and they can multiply very, very small samples of DNA to get enough of a sample to map that DNA. So the, the Brown's chicken case was the first case that really kind of. In the, in this area. Yeah. That yeah. was the one that really made, made um, headlines and j- just so happened that when they were working on that crime scene, the crime scene, I'm sorry, the crime lab director was at the scene and they found some food in a guard garbage basket. Of course, you're going to have food in a, um, a restaurant, but she knew that there was something coming up over the and on the horizon called um, DNA, where you could take samples from food. You can take samples mm-hmm. from bite marks. You can take samples from uh, well, at that time I was I wasn't I'm not too sure about touch technology, but she had them take and freeze that those those food samples that they found, and later that when they sent that in. Um, after it had been frozen for a number of, well, for a decade or, or more, mm-hmm. they were able to get a profile and a DNA profile. And just like fingerprints, if you just have a profile, it doesn't matter, but it has to match to something. Okay. And that's the thing that time gives you is right. the opportunity for that to match eventually. And over the, the period of that time, uh, now for felonies, they're, they're taking DNA samples for a felony offenders. Right. Um, now they have a database. The CODIS database has all of that stuff in it. And um, they can put that sample from the food in the database. It comes up with a match the way that it, and it's not like on television. Let's talk about that. Cause we're talking about yeah. reality. the way it comes back is it will, um, the computer will spit out maybe six or seven different possibilities. Mm-hmm. And then it's up to the technician to look those over by hand and, you know, by eye and see which one is actually uh, matches the best. Okay. And it works the same way with fingerprints. When you feed a um, fingerprint into a database, uh, it will spit out a number of possibilities. And then it's up to the examiner to look at those and say, yeah, this is it. They have to verify it. Mm -hmm. So, DNA was kind of a game changer. Have there been other tools that have evolved over the years that help you flesh out the picture of what happened in the scene? Well, uh, yeah, different techniques of um, pressure evidence, the way you search for it, the way you collect it. And and now I'm talking about the floor in the house, you know, or the floor uh, in whatever building you're in. Mm -hmm. Somebody had to walk on it. So there may be um, shoe impressions in the mud outside the house, or there may be shoe impressions in the snow outside the house. And uh, in the past, they hadn't paid a lot of attention to those, but just like everything else, um, they have footwear databases. So if you bring in an impression from a shoe, you can look through that database and it'll tell you that's a Nike Air Jordan. Uh, It Mm -hmm. was this model, okay? And um, shoe manufacturers now, keep uh, records of all that stuff and they feed it right. into a database. Right. And isn't it uh, an accurate statement to say that also um, even computer printers have a fingerprint? They actually do. I guess they, um, um, 
they're built into um, a lot of them. You can, with that matrix, it was actually more, well, I, I guess with lasers, lasers it is too, but you, you know, you're, you run low on, on ink or this certain pin isn't, um, isn't pushing out the, or not pin, I'm going back to dot matrix, mm. but it's the same with dot matrix and, and inkjet. You've got those little inkjets and you can see, okay, with every, every time it hits this certain point, it's not ejecting the ink. Mm-hmm. So that is like a fingerprint for that printer or a laser printer might have the same type of thing. Okay. So in terms of technology, it talks, talk about something that you really kind of had your hands on closely is crime scene photography and videography. Right. Uh, that, well, it, it's changed quite a bit. Um, back in the day um, you were given, well, I started with a, a four by five camera at, at the, when I first started in 1979 and that was very difficult to use. You needed a lot of light. You needed a tripod. Um, it wasn't something you really carried with you. It's like, if you had a serious enough crime, you'd go to the station and you'd get the four by five, mm-hmm. you get light, you know, flash bulbs and you'd go take your pictures. Now it wasn't that much, much longer after that, where uh, single lens reflex 35 millimeter cameras came in the prices dropped. So they bought one and we were able to use 35 millimeter and you were able to eat more easily collect quite a few more photos, but the training wasn't there. If you were lucky, you had someone that really was into photography and knew how to use the camera and really knew how to take some good photos. But it's not like you and I, uh, Drew, where you go out and on uh, Thanksgiving, you take photos or Christmas, you take photos. Of right. Your family, right. We're in out in daylight. We're in the house. You know, back then you had to either have daylight film or incandescent film or, you know, the, or a balance filter or whatever. Right. It was a lot more difficult, but you weren't taking photos at night in a dark warehouse, you know, and so there had to be special training for that. When we moved into digital, one of the things that we had to work around was the fact that the first digital cameras that came out were very, very expensive. Okay. Mm-hmm. And as the price dropped uh, and everybody had a digital camera, the quality wasn't there. You right. still didn't have the same quality that you had with uh, color film or black and white film. Right. The pixel so, thing. Yes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And And you had to get to a point where, um, the number of pixels was enough to actually be as good as uh, 35 millimeter. There was a time when we took 35 millimeter of any close-ups that we had to do. So if it was a shoe impression or if it was a, a fingerprint, that a photograph mm-hmm. that we wanted to take, we had to do that with film because the digital technology wasn't there. When you needed to gotcha. look at minutia, you didn't know if it was a detail or an artifact. Right. So so we actually did, a lot of times we did both until we got to the point where uh, the digital cameras were as good as or better than the 35 millimeter. And there was no need for 35 millimeter. So obviously in terms of the clarity of the images you're capturing and the storage of them is much more efficient. What other advantages do crime scene investigators get from digital technology that they weren't able to get with film? The, well, the advantage of a digital is um, the same thing that you and I 
experience with digital cameras that we have is that it's available immediately. Film is cheap, but with digital, you can take as many photos as you want. And you it only depended on the uh, the storage card that you had. Mm-hmm. And if you had multiple storage cards, you could take as many as you need to take uh, with different exposures, different, mm-hmm. uh, whereas you're usually limited 36 exposures on a film roll. Here you could have 100, 200, you know, and take different bracketing uh, of different scenes to make sure you get something that looks really good. And, um, and that is available almost immediately. As soon as I get back to the PD, I can, I can download it. I can put it on a disc. I can make multiple discs. I can give them to the investigators. Uh, we eventually ended up sharing that on an um, a encrypted photo server that was available on everybody's desk. So the chief mm-hmm. can come in at the next day or that night, and he can look at the f- were available uh, from the scene at different security levels. Not everybody right. could look at them, obviously. Right. But um, that's the, the big advantage to digital. is, um, And it's the same thing with uh, video. We started with tape, VHS, or, um, or analog tape, and then we went to digital tape. And you could fit a lot more on the smaller digital tapes. And mm-hmm. then uh, we went to the, the digital memory cards. Uh, were the same thing. The quality was as good or better uh, in this case than than the film. So, and it was available immediately. Hello? Um, hey, I'm in the middle of something right now. Oh, okay, okay. Well, I guess we'll be back right after this. You know... Aren't there enough things that cost an arm and a leg when you're running a business? There's really no reason you should be spending five grand or more for a website unless it's doing some pretty whiz-bang stuff. With Squarespace, you don't have to, even with some whiz-bang. With plans starting as low as 12 bucks a month for a personal website, Squarespace has a library of professionally designed templates to start from with easy-to-use tools that let you customize your site to fit your brand. So get that site going today. Just go to youdontsay.net, look for the Squarespace logo on the homepage, click on it, and when you check out, put in the code PARTNER10, again, that's PARTNER10, you'll save 10% off your first subscription on a website or a domain. And if you need help with your site, drop Left Brain Right Brain Marketing a call at lbrbm.com. Squarespace, it's the shortest, most cost-effective distance between here and success. Let's go back to uh, the place that you were heading to earlier in, in our pre-conversation, um, as you, you know, over years you have, have experience and you gain experience when new investigators come on, what's that process like? I mean, the first time you walk into a scene, if, I mean, if you've been in law enforcement, you've probably seen something similar to what you see at crime scenes, uh, if not, you know, an actual, uh, situation, what kind of an adjustment is it for people coming into this job? It, it's it's a difficult adjustment. I think one of the things we implemented when uh, we were at Schomburg was during the, let's say it was a police officer. Um, if that police officer was not a police officer anywhere else, or even if they were, what we would do is ask them to come down and spend at least a day, maybe two, with us in investigations down in crime scene unit. And we would show them cases that we had worked on and talk about the difficulties and talk about our expectations for them when they are finally set off on their own 
and they uh, get to a crime scene and they have to do it for themselves. What do we want them to do? What do we need them to be careful of? Don't touch this. Don't go in and out the point of entry or the point of exit. Use another door because we're going to be working on that point of entry or working on that point of exit. So uh, we go over with them the types of things that we expect of them when they get out on their own. Um, And a lot of times they don't even think about that. The basic training courses for police officers cover it a little bit. Mm-hmm. But everybody has different procedures. Everybody has different uh, methods. Right. Uh, a lot of departments. Uh, if you go to a if you go to a police academy as a new officer, you're working with guys who go home to their police departments, and they don't have a forensic services unit. They've um, they've got to depend on the, the evidence technician, the old school evidence technician. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're going to be the the guy. Maybe they're going to be the one that has to go to school, and do that evidence work. Anyway. Um, for police officers, we would always spend two days with them, okay, at least, um, and always tell them, hey, if you have any questions, any anything comes up, here's my phone number. We have department phones, so just give me a call. I don't care if I'm at home, just call me. And if I can keep you from screwing something up, I'd be happy to do that, you know, right then and there, rather than have to deal with something that you screwed up tomorrow, you know, or didn't do. Make sure you do right. that. that. Right. And then we had our, because we had our own civilian ATs, um, you would, there would be transitions, you know, people would leave, retire, go to other agencies and a new technician would get hired. And then we would have to train that person. Basically, Mm -hmm. if we were lucky, it was a retired officer, maybe who had some crime scene experience. So we would train them the way we would train a, um, a rookie police officer. Basically you work with someone for a number of months. Uh, until you can go out on your own. You're, during that period of time, you're you're treat, teaching, teaching them how to write reports. They're writing reports. You're reviewing them, that kind of thing. And then right. they learn all the methods and methodology, you know, with all of the equipment that we have. And, and also, they're going to school during that period of time. They may go to a basic and an advanced uh, evidence school. They may go to a blood spatter school. They may go to a, a videography school, mm-hmm. a photography school. Uh, different levels of those things. Okay. Uh, so, so they're very well trained, but that is training doesn't show you everything. You have to come back and use it. So right. what we always used to do is uh, with the new officers, we'd make sure that, Hey, we haven't had a job in a little while. You haven't really go. Here's some um, ongoing training on the job training that we would um, try and give those person, give that person rather as much experience as they can. Right. Um, the other part of it, dealing with a new person, is especially someone who wasn't in law enforcement. Maybe they're coming in as a civilian. I'm going to use an example, no names, but of, um, of one of the techs we hired, very experienced in DNA. Mm-hmm. He actually worked in a private laboratory that did DNA analysis uh, for civil cases, mostly. So she was very experienced in it, but she had never worked at the collection end of it. These tubes would come in and she would work the DNA. So it was um, a matter of teaching her how to collect it in this in the field and how different that was for them from just a laboratory setting uh, because it's mm-hmm. very dirty. You know, you're working and you're going into some place where there's a lot, maybe some body fluids and mm-hmm. maybe, uh, you know, feces and all. it's not clean, you know. So you can't do clean collection under those circumstances, clean as possible. But 
that was difficult for her because she was used to um, that clean technology that mm-hmm. she worked with in the lab. The other thing is they're not used to dealing with uh, dead people. Okay. Mm-hmm. Dead people stink. Okay. Right. And there were times when um, you would, maybe a, a person died in an apartment on the third floor and you walk in the front door on the first floor and you can smell them. By the time you get upstairs, it is a hundred times worse. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you've got to go in and work in that situation and do your job. And it's very difficult for a lot of people. Um, I, in that one scene, I remember her actually backing out and saying, I can't do this. Right. I'm not going to ever get used to this. Right. Well, guess what? She did. And, and she wanted it enough that she worked through it. So that kind of brings me to this next question. And I have to ask this because I have several friends who have served or are serving as first responders. You know one of them. And there's there's got to be baggage that follows you having worked in that space and certainly that you carry in beyond your your career. So right. when when you and I spoke about this conversation, and let me know if you need me to strike this part. When you and I spoke about this conversation, um, you talked about having been retired. And, you know, I've you said to me, I've seen one too many dead babies. So, you know, you go into this job day after day and see things that the rest of us n- never see or can't even imagine. And you can't unsee these things. So how how do you manage to go home at the end of the day and be present for your family? How do you... It's separate. Not, you know what? If if that's an easy thing for you to do, there's something wrong. Okay, because mm-hmm. you can't just leave your you can't just leave your emotions and your feelings outside when you go into a, a crime scene. I mean, it, it is that person is someone's part of someone's family. They're a human being. So many times you just work through it. What happened? I'll give you an example. Uh, that same technician. Um, when we were at a an autopsy for a nine-year-old who had died, she had she had problems with it, and uh, we talked about it. Backed off a little bit, and I said, "Look, you, what you're going to have to learn is you're going to have to just focus on the task at hand and and do what you're required to do, but don't forget." about your emotions. Okay. We can deal with those later. Okay. If you need me to sit and talk with you later, we'll sit and talk. If you need me to sit and cry with you later, we'll sit and do that. Dealing with a dead, not a nine-year-old is not easy. Okay. And especially when you're, you're sitting, you're standing there and you're watching them being cut open during an autopsy. Okay. It's very emotional. Okay. And um, they do something that in the medical examiner's office that I don't think a lot of people realize. At the beginning of their day, all of the doctors get together and they they talk about the cases that they have, and then they say a prayer. It's that. It's remembering the humanity of all those people that are going through that office that um, keeps you human, okay? Right. And it's very easy to learn to lose that humanity if you do that day in and day out. And it's right. just another person. It's just another body. And if it doesn't affect you, that like I said earlier, there's something wrong, okay? Um, what you end up doing is you have friends and you have resources at work, people that you know that you can just talk about. It. And that's one of the things I learned is like, don't keep it in, just talk mm-hmm. about it. 
This right. is what I saw. And it really, really affected me. What do you think? You know, and you get to the point where if you're dealing with, um, you're dealing with adults, they'll, they won't make fun of you. Okay. They don't, right. they don't think it's funny. You don't have to go to the other room and, and just kind of wipe away your tears because you just, you know, took a dead baby out of a chair right. because the, 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 the uh, drug addict mother laid on him and suffocated him. It's okay to to cry in a situation like that because it's very emotional, especially if you have your own kids. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, but for the grace of God, go I. You know, it's uh, it's very emotional sometimes, and sometimes it's easy to get very callous about those types of things. Mm-hmm. But you never stop thinking about them, and you you really need to have some resources, people that you know that you can talk to that understand what you're going through. Any police officer would tell you that there there is what they consider a whole subculture of police officers because there's nobody else except for maybe emergency room nurses, okay, right? Really understands what you're what you're dealing with, and so you you have a tendency to lose a lot of your friends. You have a tendency to only hang out with other cops. You have a tendency mm-hmm. to do that type of thing. Um, to isolate yourself from people who just don't get it. And I always tell people, Hey, try not to do that. Okay. Try to to hang on to some of your friends and just, you know, if for no other reason, just have some normalcy in your life because it's all death and gore and um, bad experiences. Right. Let me call the police. It's uh, it's not for something good. It's not because you just had a baby or it's your birthday. It's because something bad happened. And that's the only thing, you see a lot of times, so it's hard to it's hard to keep your 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 finger on the on what's normal sometimes. Mm-hmm. But you really need to do it, right, in order to just uh, stay mentally healthy, right. So Frank, you know, there's that aspect of it of of just being able to cope day to day with what you're seeing and processing it, and you know, talking it out with your peers and other people. But there's the other aspect of it that. You know, situations that you walk into are messy. Sometimes they don't get solved. And, you know, I think, I don't think there's such a thing as closure. I mean, I just don't in terms of families of victims. I think probably the best they get to is a coming to grips and ability to move forward and process what happened. But that becomes very hard when they don't know what happened. And in situations and cases that you worked on where, Despite every effort you made and every resource that you turned right. to to get the the answer for them, you weren't able to. Um, and I, I wonder, is that part of a, a kind of a survivor's guilt that you haven't been able to get those answers for families? And how do you wrestle with that? Well, if, if you've done everything that you can and there are no other resources to tap, there really is nothing else you can do. And you do feel bad about that, but you know what? Uh, your your mind gets filled up again with the next job that comes up because, like I said before, you're a lot of times you're you get you get backed up on on work because you just uh, it's like any other job where you just have to go from job to job and something new comes up. And you know what? Sometimes you can in the in the amount of time that some the the case sits on the shelf, maybe unsolved, something else might happen. So mm-hmm. there's always that, and that is reassuring to a lot of um, a lot of families, knowing that if someone committed a crime and your son or daughter was the victim of that crime, 
um, there's always time. And time sometimes will bring um, new evidence to light or new information to light. So we always kind of um, reassure them with that and say that if we hear anything else or if you hear anything else, uh, we are always here. A lot of times we stay, we get very personally attached to a lot of these people and, and right. we stay in touch. Because when a case goes cold, it's just cold. It's not that people aren't still paying attention to it. Correct. It's just that there's nothing more at this time that we can do with this mm -hmm. okay, until more information comes to light. Um, it, and it, it, there's also a situation where, uh, like, I think I mentioned earlier where you um, you collect DNA, you collect fingerprints, you collect a lot of things, and it's a matter of time. The way that the fingerprint and DNA databases work is that that information is entered as an unknown, okay, unsolved crime. And now, three years or five years later, um, the offender in that crime gets arrested for disorderly conduct. He's in a mm -hmm. fight in a bar. Or she's in a, you know, some type of disturbance, shoplifting even. They're, they're fingerprinted. Let's take fingerprints, for example. And now their fingerprints are put in a system and they hit on an unsolved crime. So years down the road, you may have something come back and hit and say, look, the person that was arrested for this crime by this agency hit on your unknown from this date and time. There's the case number. And um, that happens with both fingerprints and DNA. Um, it could happen with other types of things too. Um, mm -hmm. Somebody makes a statement in prison, you know, or something like that. We hear about that on the news a lot. Um, yeah. So anything like that can can happen years from years from now. Got it. So Frank, what what do you most want people to know about the people who do the work you do? Well, uh, it's very important. Uh, I think that people have a sense of reality. Okay, it's easy. Uh, we're we're inundated or we're we're bombarded with television shows that show a very unrealistic view. It's kind of like HGTV. We're going to give you a kitchen remodel in a weekend. Exactly right. Um, there is uh, what they uh, they they called the CSI effect mm -hmm. in court, where you have jurors that come in and they have watched every episode of CSI. And they want to know, where's the fingerprints? Where's the DNA? Where's this? Where's that? Right. And you have to go in and say, hey, I, there was none to collect. You have to explain yourself. Um, and the reality is not that, uh, or we may have DNA or we may have fingerprints, but we couldn't compare them to anybody. Right. And they may, in their mind, be, be looking for that supercomputer in the basement with the cute technician that, that gets results before the next commercial break. So that's the type of thing that uh, that people just don't get, and it's the same. It's the same thing with doctor shows and nurses. You know right. that the dramatization and the unrealistic uh, presentation uh, that right. that Hollywood television puts on a lot of those those uh, those shows. Right. So I guess if I were to you know say that uh, people just need to have a little better grasp of what reality is believe the investigators okay they're not trying to not trying to shortcut you they're working as hard as they can to uh, to solve the crime and we want to solve it as as much as you want it solved uh, right because we want um we talked about closure before for a case um i believe that uh, closure comes from talking about things 
being open about it, not keeping it inside. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're dealing with a family death, for example, it, it's very upsetting if your mother or father or a relative dies, but you need to talk about it. You, you don't need to keep that inside. The more you talk about it, the easier it is to talk about. And the more you realize um, how much you care for that person and how much, um, how much they cared about you. You know, what kind of experiences you, you talk about. You need to talk about those kind of things. And it's the same thing with, with, in, with the detectives and, and with um, police officers, crime scene investigators. We talk about it. We, we don't keep it inside. And so what would you say to someone who's considering a career in forensics? Boy, that's a very popular career. Well, there, uh, truthfully, there's a lot more uh, than there used to be. Uh, there are a yeah. lot more jobs out there than that there used to be. Um, in the Midwest, uh, very few departments have crime scene uh, units. They, um, they depend on the, the evidence technicians, the old school evidence technicians to do their work. And then if something big comes up, Luckily, now we have some task forces that can do those more serious crimes for those departments. Uh, But on the East Coast, on the West Coast, throughout like Nevada, uh, Arizona, California, they have and they have had civilian crime scene investigators for a a long time. Mm -hmm. And it's worked out very well for them. So I would say, you know what, here's what I always tell people. Sometimes we'll get high school students, for example. I want to, what can I major in in college? If I want to go into a, a crime scene investigation or if I want to get into a crime laboratory or something like that, I suggest, I said, don't go, don't go into college and be a law enforcement major, okay? Go in and find something that interests you like um, chemistry or biology or one of the mm-hmm. sciences. And what the science major will give you is a lot of technical knowledge that you can then in the future use for the crime scene job. I would, Mm. if someone uh, sent a resume or two resumes to me and one of them says that they've watched every episode of CSI and uh, that's what makes them qualified. And they went to a a citizen's police academy. Okay. And they're using that example because actually we got one that said that. So that was their qualifications. They watched every episode of CSI. Okay. Um, and if right next to them is a uh, someone who just graduated from college or maybe, you know, a few years after, but they've got a degree in chemistry and maybe they've worked for a, you know, even it's just like an environmental company, but they've got that background in chemistry or biology or something. Mm-hmm. Like that. I'm going to look at the one that had the background in biology or, or chemistry um, and there's a, a greater chance of you getting hired than, hey, I'm just a law enforcement major. Okay, well, right. that's great. You don't even need that to be a police officer. Okay, you, they teach you everything you need to know. Law enforcement, a major, uh, like a bachelor's degree, really doesn't doesn't do much for you if you're going to be a police officer. Okay. Unless obviously required, you're required to have a bachelor's degree. Gotcha. Okay. So, uh, Frank, to lighten it up as we come into the home stretch. Uh, we're going to go into the questionnaire. Oh, um, oh no. the bonus <laughs> round? Yeah. I'm well, not going to have to do impressions? No, no. Okay. okay, so what's your favorite word? Exaggerate. What's your Let's least favorite word? Moist. <laughs> You're the third person in a row who's used that one. <laughs> oh, um, it, it, be, it would be scary if I said that was my favorite word. Right? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that that'd be kind of creepy. Yeah. Um, 
what what turns you on? Well, right now it's uh, spending time with my granddaughter and uh, teaching her all kinds of things and, uh, you know, just doing stuff with her. What turns you off? What turns me off is when people ask me what's the, uh, in, in reference to like crime scene work, what is the coolest thing you ever saw? Because generally the coolest thing that I ever saw, or maybe the most dramatic thing I ever saw was something that I've been trying to forget about. And now you want me to relive that agony that I had to mm-hmm. oppress for all these years. Yeah. Then I can answer that question. What's your favorite curse word? I think that I don't use a lot of curse words, um, but I think the one that creeps up when I, when I have to talk with other people is, is shit. Yeah. Shit. Okay. Yeah. What sound do you love? Oh, a uh, pipe organ. Love that. What sound do you hate? Grinding brakes. If there was a profession other than the one you did, what would you like to attempt? I did electronics when I was in college and okay. I was kind of pointed in the direction of um, audio studio engineer. So I think I could have done well with that. I, I, it was very interesting. What profession would you not like to do? Uh, I don't, I would never want to be the guy that empties those porta potties. <laughs> okay. That's yeah. a good one. So if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Uh, nice job. You did okay. Okay, Frank, I, I really appreciate it. I was kind of surprised on the on the different job thing. You got a wall full of guitars behind you. I do. Hey, did you notice that? Yeah. I have a problem. Yeah. I need an intervention. You you build them and uh, yeah, I play a little bit. Yeah, most of those are in a state of disrepair that need some type of work, bridge work, or they need yeah. a neck reset or something. Okay. And um, it, I find it interesting. I used to. I have a wood shop and I used to build furniture. I still do, obviously. But but this is something that uh, music. But it's a hobby. It's not something you want to do for a living. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, be, wouldn't be fun if you had a you had a grind at it. Exactly. Well, Frank, I really appreciate you stepping up um, to have this conversation and share some of the realities of the job. I I want to thank you for all of your years in service and the burdens that you uh, had to carry through those years to to help solve crimes and 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 get answers for people's families and that sort of thing. So I really, again, appreciate your time and the opportunity to talk to you. It's great talking with you, Drew. Thank you. Nice meeting you. Likewise. Uh, This is Drew Zagorski. You don't say peace. Peace out. Thanks for listening. If you have a story to tell, shoot me an email to info at youdontsay.net. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at YDS Stories. Thanks again, and see you on the next episode.